on various things. I'm Gary Lama. Today's interview is with author and academic Chris L. Terry. Chris spent his teen years singing in the Richmond, Virginia punk scene, where I first met him, and he has gone on from that to become both an author and teacher. Chris's writing draws from his personal life and offers a place of reflection to his experiences growing up as a human being of mixed race in the South amidst the 90s and punk rock. He is currently co-editing the book, Black Punk Now, to bring more visibility to the prevalence of black punk rockers and the narrative of punk rock. It was awesome to talk with Chris and hear about how he came to building the life he's living, what he has found to work for him in his personal path, and what he is working towards. All in all, it was a great conversation, and I think you'll enjoy it. With that, my conversation with Chris Terry. How did you get involved in uh, punk rock? Through skateboarding. I, I was a hip-hop kid who liked skateboarding, and I was reading Thrasher, and they'd be writing about the classic hardcore bands like Bad Brains and Black Flag, and I started checking those bands out. Um, my dad, is he's my black parent, and he likes a lot of hard guitar music. Like, I grew up hearing a lot of the Jimi Hendrix and Ben Lizzie and stuff around the house. So the idea of, like, aggro rock music wasn't really rebellious when I was in my house when I was a teenager. Um, yeah, and I started going to shows with people I skated with. There was, I was living in the suburbs of Boston until I was 15. And oh, wow. I, kept, I went to, there's a club called the Middle East that I think is still around, and there was one called The Rat or The Rat Skeller. And those are both, you know, smaller, divey, Venues where punk bands would play, and sometimes bands from our burb would play in the city, and we would go. Um, there was a band called Toxic Narcotic, where we were like a street punk band, and there was a ska band called Skabooby and the Epitones, and they ended up on Moon Records, actually. And so they play all ages shows in the city sometimes, and me and my buddies would get on the train and go into town and go to that. But I didn't, oh, wow. that was kind of, I was like a punk spectator at that time, and I got more seriously into punk after we moved to Richmond. Maybe no, less than a year after we moved to town, I started going to all ages shows at Twisters. This would have been like early mid 1995. Um, the first show I went to was I saw Four Walls Falling and Damn Near Red, who were like a shoegaze type of band and the early incarnation of Frotus, all at Twisters on Green Street. Um, and I, that, that was when punk it, it seemed more accessible in a way. It wasn't like I was just showing up to observe this thing. It seemed like something that I wanted to do. And I don't know if it was something different about what was going on in Richmond or just where I was at being kind of new in town and like looking for something. But it really clicked. I liked how possible it made things feel. Like you could start a band. You can do this. You can be part of something, which I didn't always feel like, um, especially in the Boston area. We were like living in an affluent suburb and we weren't really as rich as our neighbors. So it often felt yeah. like things were inaccessible. Um, but punk bands should feel accessible to me. Interesting. That's, that's interesting that, that Richmond felt more like you could get into it um, and like do it yourself. Um, so how did you transform from being what you call a punk spectator to actually playing music? Um, I knew I wanted to have a band. I've been a music lover since I was a kid. Um, there's always music in my house. My dad's also a guitar player. Um, and I had bands with some of my friends when I was, in, in the Boston area when I was like 14, but it was just us kind of, it was more like alternative rock. I had a friend who's really, is still really good at the guitar. Um, shout out to Adam Ditch Kurtz, who is now a pedal steel player in Nashville, actually. We used to play like rock music together. 
So I was looking to have a band. That was the way that I wanted to express myself. And I made friends with uh, Brendan Tracy, who I'm still friends with. And he had a band going. They were looking for a singer and ended up joining. And that turned into Flesh Eating Creeps. So that would have been summer in 1995, like three, four months after I started kind of going to shows in earnest in Richmond. Wow. How was that experience? Um, Because that's, I mean, that time you're talking about, it's it's right when kind of like punk was, I guess, having its third wave, fourth wave. I can't remember on that good of waves. Um, But punk was starting to blow up around there um, again. Yeah. Um, and so you would have been 15 at that time? I was 16 and 95. I think I'm like a year older than you. I also am pretty sure I'd probably met you within weeks of meeting Brandon. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, I can't claim to be a purist. Like, I like Green Day. I still do. Uh, and I already like other stuff. Like, I've been working backwards from Nirvana to, like, you're the Vaselines or the Whitehurns. And I like Fugazi and Minor Threat. So I had, like, a kind of punk framework. But the idea of you know, a band like, say, Bad Brains felt almost as distant as, like, Nirvana, just because it wasn't in front of me. So the idea of punk being more accessible, it seemed more likely in Richmond. Um, even though I guess I was going to see bands from my town before, it seemed like more of a rigmarole, I guess. We were also living in the city in Richmond, um, like, three blocks up Great Street from Twisters, so I could just walk down to a show when I wanted to go. I was on a pretty long leash at home. And, like, I like Green Day. I remember, like, in the process of the move, we stayed with one of my aunts in Connecticut for a while, and I was sleeping on the couch. And we did, we never had cable, but she had cable, so I was just watching MTV and trying to absorb as much old music as I could. And I remember the video for Longview by Green Day came on, and it was, like, about being bored on the couch, and that's exactly what I was doing. And I was just like, shit, this is, this is music about me. This speaks to me. This is going to be my thing, you know? Um, Hell, yeah. So, punk, you know, punk, it was... It was an exciting time. Like a lot of people were, were getting interested in it, and I felt like they were, they were. It was happening on different levels. You know, you had the Green Day stuff that was famous music on the radio, but then there was also weird shit that VCU students were making, and you know, playing at Twisters or playing at a house show right nearby. So it felt like there were a lot of different access points, but it was still kind of all tied together. And I appreciated that. I tried not to be too much of a knob about being like, this is the real punk and this isn't. So I'm sure I kind of. So when y'all started playing together, y'all saw the punk scene here. Like what was your idea of what to do as a band really? We didn't really have a, a discussion about it. It wasn't like, let's start a band that sounds like these three things mixed together. Um, Brendan was, I'd say the lead, the lead songwriter. And he was into a lot of, 80s hardcore, he's a real DC hardcore geek, like the Flex Your Head era stuff, like Void. Um, and we'd hang out and listen to that and other, like, you know, more straightforward, four-chord, hardcore punk type of stuff in his basement at his parents' place in the fan. So, oh, yeah, that was awesome. Right? <laughs> yeah. That, that uh, Yeah, messed up beanbag chair and all sorts of weird family junk and, like, a soldered-together amplifier. It was such a good punk rock layer. So I think, you know, it started off like that. Pretty straightforward, 1982-ish hardcore. Um, yeah, and even so, like, I was kind of, I, I had never sang in a band before. If you even want to call it singing, you know, I was shouting. I was the vocalist. Um, and I was trying to find my voice. So do I scream like the dude from Scapegrace or Frail? Do I shout like Ian MacKay? You know, how do, how do I sing? How do I do this? And it was all learning all of that on, on my feet. 
Yeah, and and when y'all started recording, how is that process for you? Like actually hearing yourself and seeing yourself be a part of this, and then you know, selling this and in, back into the scene. Sure, we'd record. My dad had a full track, so we we borrow his Tascam full track. We recorded in Brendan's basement until the neighbors got pissed off. Um, I've never enjoyed hearing my own voice recorded in any context. And, right. you know, you know, whether it was on an answering machine when I was a kid or on these demos or, you know, listening to this podcast later. Um, so it was always like a little, a little embarrassing. I was proud of what we were doing. I liked the process of making things and knowing that I was creating things and seeing something through from start to finish. You know, I think being in the process of it and being in the moment with it and knowing that I could have the agency to finish something was the most satisfying part. That's a pretty tremendous thing at that age, like actually having the ability to make something yourself at this time, you know, you're talking about like when you're 16, like you're just allowed to drive, at least here in Virginia at that point, like you're still not like a legal adult, but you're actually able to like make this music. And that's, that's kind of crazy also in the, in the context of like the way that music system is kind of set up where you know, before punk, you might've been like, oh, you know, I need to be like in Megadeth or something to be able to, you know, I need to be on a major label to put out a record, you know? And then all of a sudden it's like, yeah. no, nah, we can just do that next week. <laughs> right. Right. I think I, it's, I know it's corny and maybe problematic to com to compare a bunch of DIY punks to the Black Panthers, but there's that Fred Hampton quote where he's like, some people like to get together and have a meeting about doing something. I like to get together and do something. And I think it's similar. Oh, wow. For um, sure. You know, it just ain't even in the concept of like demo tapes, you know, like that's like like a demo tape to punks. People actually record and sell. But in like the major label world, a demo tape is something you would never let your audience hear. It's something just made to get you signed to a label. Yeah. Yeah. It's that, yeah, that, that too small to fail kind of how can we do the most with the least attitude that was really attractive to me in punk. It's also interesting to think, I, it's always, I remember, I remember this as a teenager and even now in my life when I meet people who aren't really familiar with punk, it, it is pretty amazing the amount of stuff that punk rockers can achieve. You know, they're like, wait, you recorded a record on your own and then drove two states over to play a gig and you were 17. What the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> Or, you know, right. going on tour, you know, having those conversations with like a normie coworker or a classmate at VCU or something. And they're like, you fucking do what? How? <laughs> yeah. And and why do you think that? It, do you think it's because your parents were different or do you think it's because, you know, I mean, like I have a kid now. And so I know that like a lot of what parents do depends on how far their kids push them for it so i mean were, were your parents like really open to that or did you have to kind of like really put it to them like hey this is really important to me or like how did that happen at that age for you yeah my parents i've, I've been real lucky they're both kind of hippie-ish um and have always encouraged my interests in any sort of creative stuff both as a creative person and as like a consumer of art um, my dad's also a music lover so he was stoked that i wanted to play music and was always really supportive of that and i think you know I don't know, when I was, like, around that age, things were pretty tough in my family. Part of it was just being a teenager, but, like, the move was difficult. We were having a lot of money problems. And I think my parents 
accepted that I was never going to go to med school or anything. They were just like, yeah, I think you're meant to be a creative person. You you do that. And if we try to stop you, it's not going to, it's just going to make things worse. <laughs> right. so, yeah. Um, um, we're all really stubborn and hardheaded. So, you know, them trying to get in my way wasn't doing anyone any favors. And they, I think I appreciate that they recognized that really quickly and encouraged me to, or encouraged me and or gave me the space to, to do my thing. I mean, that's awesome. You know, I think, I think when parents try to fight that, I guess, inevitable tide of like who their child is, like, it's not going to work out well. And luckily it sounds like you had so much in common with them that maybe they recognize that sameness in themselves and were like, mm, yeah, that's not going to work if I try to suppress that. Yeah, yeah, and they maybe even had different experiences where they were more didn't feel as able to chase their dreams for whatever reason. I'm not sure. Also, my mother is a, a librarian, and so you know, books were always around, and I had an aptitude for reading. So she's always encouraged me to read and write, and that's where I'm at today. So, yeah. So, kind of speaking to that, so you're playing in this band. Did, were you writing at all when you were this age? Um, some I was I was making zines. So, and I was also like English was my favorite class in high school and I was reading at home. A lot of times I was just reading zines, but also reading different books. I forget, God, I forget the author's name, but there was, was a thriller mystery type of writer who lived in Richmond and would base her stories there. And her main character was an investigator named Case Carpetta. I used to love those. Oh. It... God, what is her name? Uh, yeah, she's like Patricia cute. Cornwell. Yes, yes, Patricia, Patricia Cornwell, right. So I remember flying through all of those books and it was just so cool because I was getting to know Richmond and getting to know the city. And, you know, she's writing about somebody who lives on Huguenot Road. And I'm like, I know where that is. That's amazing. So it was this cool connection to, to books, you know. I, I didn't even realize she did that. I'm going to have to read that. Have you ever read uh, that book Murder I wrote? No, what is that? It is a book about, oh, I'm so bad with old, dead presidential type people i think it was james wiss okay um it's about how he was murdered it's set in richmond by his like nephew because his nephew wanted his money or something like that <laughs> but it's set in like the seven late 17 early 1800s here in richmond and it's really good um it's a Ooh. really good book um Maybe it's not called murder. I, no, it's called I am murdered. Sorry, Jesus, <laughs> not murder. I am murdered. <laughs> yeah, I am murdered. That's what it's called. Yeah. Um, but well, so when you started putting these, how did you get into doing zines? Uh, I think it was a similar thing to that punk idea of you can make something and share it and feel like you're participating really quickly. I forget exactly how I got into it. I think I found some zines that. Sound hole or plan nine or something, and was like, Hey, I could express myself this way. Oh, hell yeah. Um, did you ever do any of this stuff like like pairing it with? I, I thought I remembered you doing one where you like paired it with like tapes and stuff. Yeah, um, Flesh Eating Creeps, our first full on seven inch, we released it in 1998, and it came with an issue of my Z. So the lyrics okay. booklet also had some more Zini type stuff in it as well. Yeah, so sometimes that dovetailed, but, you know, there's also a sense that it's like this band is the thing I'm doing with Brendan and, and other people, and the zine is my thing, and I don't want to, like, 
take up too much. I don't want to make, I don't want to make the band too much about me basically. Right. Yeah. No, I feel you on that. Um, <laughs> Cause if you're working in different mediums, there's a, there, there's a possibility. Um, yeah. So when y'all ended up playing as that band, how did that trajectory go? Um, I know y'all started playing, like, I think the first time I kind of ran into or met you or met Brendan, I think it was around, like, the St. Edward stuff um, or shows around there. It might have been Twisters. Um, I'm not sure if y'all are playing the time I met, the first time I met y'all or there as fans, like we all would be at some points. But y'all ended up playing for, what, about six years? Yeah, we were at it for, it was, it was almost five years. But in that time, okay. you know, we went from being high school kids who were maybe more on the, like, high school kids show circuit, like the shows at St. Edward's in the basement there, and all ages shows at Twisters and Battles of the Bands at different high schools. Like, our first show was at the James River High School Battle of the Bands in 1995. It was early fall. And I remember that Ooh. day, me and Brendan had been extras in a guar video for the song Meet oh, Sandwich. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. We shot it in this weird lot on Chamberlain Ave, near where my grandparents lived, actually. Um, and so Brendan still had like stage makeup on his face at the gig. He looked like he'd been working in a coal mine or something. <laughs> um, but we were on that like high school kid show trajectory. But we also, me and him both lived in the fan and were, we had friends who were at BCU. So we also got a little bit tapped into like house shows that, you know, I say older people and it's funny because they were, you know, super sophisticated 19 year olds or something. Um, right. <laughs> we got tapped in, we got tapped into that scene too. So we start, kind of moved into the, like local house show world as well. And that's where we, exi you know, existed the most. Um, and so we felt a little bit, we had almost like a head start on feeling a little bit established in that world um, as compared to other people our age. You know, we've been doing it for a few months by the time we were the same age as the VCU freshmen, basically. And, you know, we had our, our crew of friends and the music kept evolving. Brendan got into more like, technical metal type of stuff and death metal and the songwriting got a little more like less, not linear exactly or but more more like non-linear uh the music got scrunkier and weirder and more chaotic um and we were kind of i don't know we were starting to play a little bit in the like chaotic emo type of scene in the northeast by the time that the band broke up so it, it evolved from being like full chord hardcore to being weirder shit you know we were we also liked like Power violence was kind of trendy around then. And we liked, you know, Born Against and other more kind of skewed hardcore stuff. So all that started coming in, coming into the music in different ways. And we kind of, I remember we solidified a lineup in late 1999. And we we're like, you know what, we're a little bit fatigued. We've been doing this band for four years. Um, and this feels right. This feels like we're finally like on the same page and do what we want to do. And almost right after we made that agreement that it was like, this is the final lineup. If anything changes, the band's done. Our drummer, Steve Ritt, uh, got into school with Warren Wilson in North Carolina and was like, so I'm moving to Asheville in six months. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So that was the end of the band. And it was, you know, it, it, the band had morphed so much and changed so much. And we had grown up so much in those, like, five-ish years that it was okay to – it felt like it was kind of time to move on. But it was also frustrating because we were – it also felt like we were on the verge of doing stuff. Like we had been talking to, there was a label called Mountain Records, which was kind of a cool, like DIY hardcore label in New York. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to release some of our music. And that would have been a huge step up for us in the scene. And so we were 
pissed that like, we kind of missed that opportunity. But things turned out okay. How did you personally kind of process that? Because I guess at that point, you had become an adult with the idea of this band being part of your life. And now you don't have it. So, so what did you do? Mm. I mean, I spent the summer feeling pretty lost. It was the summer of 2000 after the band broke up. I was 21. Um, and I wanted another band, you know? Because, yeah, I mean, a big part, and this is still something that I deal with as a writer. Where, you know, a part of my identity at the time was that I'm, like, producing work that I share with the world. At the time, it was music. Now it's, like, writing. Um, and when that's not going well... I get real existential. I get depressed. Um, right. And this is like a really experience with that. But, I, you know, it was also, it wasn't, I still have my friends, like me and Brendan were still close. Um, and, you know, he started, he had another band going and I quickly got other bands going too, like within about six months. You know, it was a long six months, but that's not too long in the scheme of things. It feels longer when you're 21 and it's a Richmond summer and you're bored. But yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so what was the next band for you? Uh, so I had a couple things going. Well, one thing I was playing, um, there was a drag queen named Trixie Delicious in Richmond. Yeah. And she was starting a live band to do, to back her up at some, at some shows to do like performances of, things like Loretta Lynn songs and Dolly Parton songs. So we learned like Fifth City by Loretta Lynn, for example. And oh, wow. I was doing that and playing guitar and backing her up. Um, but then I joined a band called Light the Fuse and Run with, with like some other, other people that I knew from around. The drummer is a guy named Evan Plant, who had moved down to Richmond from Massachusetts uh, to date one of my friends, uh, Robin Hagee, who we'd met online. Well, that was still like a funny idea of like meeting people online to date. Uh, <laughs> right. And, you know, it was with some other people that were, and it's funny to think about now that, you know, Richmond's a relatively small town and on the outside, it's just like, this is the punk scene. But they were like, in just like slight people I knew from around, but who were in slightly different cliques and ran in slightly different circles. So it was kind of like stepping to the left ever so slightly of what I was doing and joining, joining this band as, as a vocalist. Um, and we started pretty quickly. Everything was really organized and ambitious, and we were, like, gigging out of town within a few months. So, and so what was that experience like compared to your experience with the Creeps? It was it was great. Uh, you know, for the Flesh Eating Creeps, it was, we were, you know, it was, like, our, our first band, and so it was a lot of firsts, and that'll always be cool. But it also felt like things were slower to get going because we were all, we were an unknown quantity, or we were, like, the annoying 17-year-olds at the show. Who, yeah, I guess we'll let these guys play first. Light the and Run felt a little bit more established quickly. And so we got to, it's funny to say success because it's such a relative term, especially in the punk scene. But we were able to like gig out of town and play with bands that seemed that, that, that seemed more in line with us or more interesting to us pretty quickly. We were a little bit more in the emo core scene. Um, Light the and Run kind of sounded a little bit like Refused, a little bit like Fugazi, a little bit like Drive Like Jehu. So kind of like rock okay. and roll and post hardcore and some screaming. Um, and we did pretty well in the Northeast. Evan had a lot of connections up there from his time in in Massachusetts. He had a power violence band called Force Fed Glass. So we had a lot of connections up there and could play and our music fit in pretty well. And, you know, I know I'm talking to somebody else from Richmond, but for anyone who isn't, like, it's a good place location-wise to be a musician. You're in the middle of the East Coast and a bunch of cities are like two hours away. 
So For sure. we did a tour maybe eight months into being a band, maybe less. Um, we just went to Boston and back over the course of a week and never had to drive for more than two or three hours. You know, we played like seven or eight shows. So it started moving, started moving quickly and it was satisfying. <laughs> um, Flesh Eating Creeps was something we didn't, we didn't have, a, not a lot of people liked our band. We weren't really big or anything, but Light Diffuse and Run got a little bit more of an audience, a little bit faster as well. Yeah, at, this, at this point, you were like 22, 23, somewhere around there? Yeah, Fuse, I, I was 21 and the band broke up or stopped pretty much when I was 24. Yeah. How did you feel like coming through your 20s during this time where you're like supposed to be like, you know, okay, because that's that's when generally society starts putting that pressure on you. Like, hey, you got to figure out what you want to do. Got to get something together here. And you're playing in bands. Like, were you pretty much like, yeah, this is exactly what I want to do for the rest of my life? Or were you kind of just being like, I don't know what I want to do, but I'll do this band right now. Like, how are you approaching that? I hope this doesn't sound cynical. I'm, I'm I'm terrified of being stuck and of not having options just because of some of the shit I've seen happen in my own life and with my family when I was a kid. So I always want to make sure that I'm not painting myself into some sort of a corner. Um, I was going to VCU and I was on the six-year plan. I changed my major a bunch of times, but I knew I wanted to be a writer when I got older and older. You know, what what does older look like? When you're 22, um, I was thinking like by the time I'm 30, I want to be maybe being more serious about being a writer and like going to grad school for that. Um, I had a professor named Jeff Lodge at VCU who helped me kind of lay out what those steps might look like. So I was interested in reading. I was writing on the side some, taking writing classes, and I figured I didn't want to be the old guy who was trying to rock out. It would be maybe a better look to be like the old guy who's trying to write books. Right. So I, figured I would do as much of the music stuff as I could. And I agree that there is that kind of pressure as you're getting into late college age to settle down, become more of a grown up. And I was really feeling that in Richmond. I felt like people were thinking toward like pairing off and getting married when they were just barely of drinking age. Um, and I sure yeah. didn't want to feel stuck. I didn't want to like, I didn't want to fall into that and, you know, wake up 10 years later and be like, wait, I thought I had some other plans. And here I am in Richmond and I'm, I'm stuck. <laughs> the word stuck right. is a big one for me. So, yeah, I was like finishing up school and my sister was living in New York and I had some friends up there and I got getting an English degree and wanted to use that for something besides working a cash register. So I planned to move to New York sometime after I got done with school. So I was kind of in the moment doing the punk stuff and just giving that my all, but also knowing that there's probably going to be kind of an expiration date on that, if that makes sense. Right. No, that totally makes sense. You know, and it's weird, those social things that happen you know, you mentioned people pairing off, but, it, you know, that is a big thing. It's like, you know, the the, the dynamics of how people hang out, of, of these relationships that people have, they change around those those times, you know, because, uh, you know, a lot of people, they'll start getting jobs maybe that, that take up their time so they can't hang out anymore. Um, a lot of stuff that's really conducive to, like, finding someone to date and like moving in with them, <laughs> you know, and like oh, kind goodness. of doing yeah. that thing. But if you're not doing that, you're kind of sitting there by yourself being like, you know, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, you know, I'm touring with a band that breaks even if I'm lucky and making like eight bucks an hour working in a cafe when I'm at home. And, uh, you know, I'm about to go on a three month long tour with my band. Like, 
that's not exactly boyfriend material right there. Um, right. I was, date, I was like kind of dating someone, talking to them, and I liked them a lot. Um, but yeah, I remember like they ended up uh, kind of bouncing me for somebody who like worked at a bank and had a more steady job. Um, oh wow! And those two are those those two are married now, twenty years later, and it totally makes sense. You know, at the time, oh it really wow! Hurt. Um, but it's like no, that, it totally makes sense. Like this was this was not meant to be. It was cool in the moment, but like that wasn't going to be a long term thing, no matter what I might have wanted or thought I wanted when I was like twenty four. Yeah, it, it, well, it can definitely be hard to have that insight in the moment for sure. So, what did you do when you graduated VCU? Did you end up going to New York? <laughs> <laughs> so, I actually didn't go to my graduation ceremony because Light the Fuse and Run was a week into a summer-long tour of the U.S. and Canada and Europe. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, my mom was like, wait, you're not going to your ceremony? <laughs> like, no, I'm going to be in, I'm playing a gig in Memphis that night or something. Like, oh, why would I go wow. to that and throw my, throw my hat in the air? That's corny. I'm going to go scream in a basement to a bunch of white guys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Fuse went on, we played, I want to say it was 93 shows in 100 days. Surprise, surprise, that was the end of the band. That's a long time for a bunch of kind of dysfunctional, hard-drinking, early-20s dudes to be stuck in a contained space together. And so, we, yeah, we went on this huge tour, which was amazing. I feel like even today when I meet people, I've probably played music in their hometown. Um, and I got oh, wow. to Europe, and I'm so proud of that. Uh, but that was pretty much the end of the band. We got back. It was like fall of 2003. I, I, I planned to wait out the winter in Richmond because I knew the weather would be milder. And a friend of mine in New York had a room opening up in his apartment. And so I moved up there like the end of the winter in March of 2004. So I spent about 10 years in Richmond. And for a long time, I was like, I'm just going to prove that I'm not stuck in Richmond, that the Richmond curse isn't real. Like that was a real animating force in my life for a solid 10 years there. Wow. <laughs> so what was that shift like going to... I mean, well, you had grown up in Boston. So, I mean, Boston's pretty big, but um, what was it like being, one, back up north, and also, two, like, there on your own in New York City? Yeah. It, I, so I, I'm, I've been in California for the last 10 years, and I was in the Midwest for five years before that, but I definitely feel like an East Coaster. I feel most at home in the Northeast. It just makes the most sense to me for some reason. That said, I also think of Richmond as home. I don't get lost when I go there like I do when I go to Boston. But New York was great. I wanted, I kind of wanted a kick in the ass, and New York gave it to me. And it was just, you know, it's exciting, fast-paced city with a lot of stuff going on. I worked in publishing a little bit at a book company. Shortly after moving there, I met the woman who is now my wife. We've been together for almost 19 years now. And so I felt like I was really – I felt like it, it was helping me – it was kind of forcing me to grow up in some ways that – might not have happened if I was in Richmond just like smoking weed on my porch and working in a kitchen. Right. So it was it, it was cool. That said, like it also, rich you know New York is a place that favors the rich, right? And a lot of being there, you know, it still felt like things were a little bit gatekept or inaccessible. It almost this is a weird metaphor because I was you know dating the woman who became my wife, but it also felt like the city was like living there was sort of like dating somebody who's a little bit out of your league. You know, so I felt like I was often running to catch up and had some pretty ambivalent feelings about that sometimes. Like, I didn't end up working in publishing, didn't end up being for me. And, you know, I was also kind of trying to have my cake and eat it too. And that I was still trying to, like, 
drink and party like I was a Richmond punk rocker, but then have a right. nice job. And like, those two don't mix. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So feeling some of that stuff out. Uh, but I, I got, and also at the same time, like trying to find myself creatively while also having like a professional life. Um, band stuff started to peter out. It was harder to have a band in New York because people are busier and there are less places to practice. And so for a while, I once again felt like I didn't have a thing. And so then I kind of remember that, oh shit, I wanted to like try to go to grad school and give it a go as a writer by the time I'm 30. So that was like the last, I don't know, year and a half in New York was trying to, I remember I had, I had a job. I was working for Avon, the makeup company. I was oh, helping wow. them make, the, make their catalogs. Um, so that was like my day job. I was, I was doing the proofreading for that. Okay. There was a lot of like checking these eight digit skews for every single shade of like, of oh my God. very tedious work. Um, but you know, the, the pay was pretty good and people were friendly at the office. Also, I was like an okay looking dude in his twenties and there were like no men there. So people were just pretty kind. Um, oh. I had some pretty privilege, but I was doing that and also trying to like getting, taking writing classes and getting together a portfolio to go to grad school. So Sharon, who is my wife, was my girlfriend at the time. We moved to Chicago in 2008 because I got to grad school out there. What was your idea of, like you said it a few times, to go to grad school and then become a writer? Yeah. What, how are the two connected in your mind? So I took a creative writing workshop at VCU. I remember having a moment where I was, Jeff Lodge was the professor. And I remember looking at him and being like, yo, this is what I want to do when I grow up. I want to sit in a room and talk about writing with people. And I asked him right. after class, and I was like, hey, I'm not trying to take your job, but how do I get a job like yours? And he's like, well, you got to go to grad school and get a master's degree, and that's how you can get into teaching. Um, if you want to teach at a college level, you generally need to have an advanced degree. So I knew that that was the thing that I needed to do, but I had an instinct that I really wanted to live for a while before I did that. And, you know, instead of just going right from undergrad right into grad school, I had some other stuff I wanted to do first. And I hope that that would kind of feed my art in the long run, too, because I still worry that, you know, when people talk about, like, staying in academia after being an undergrad, like, never really leaving, I'm always worried that they're on a fast track to, like, writing a novel about a bunch of professors who were jealous of each other. Right. <laughs> and it was also like, you know what, I was making those Avon catalogs, and I was just thought, this is probably as good as it's going to get for me unless I go back to school. I wanted more than that. And I wanted to actually write. And like you, we were talking earlier about being kind of adjacent to the thing that you love. So I was like working with words in this sideways way. I wanted to just write some stuff and express myself like that. So that's, that's, that's why I went to school. So also getting a master's degree in writing. To get your degree, you have to turn in a thesis project where you basically write a book. So I pretty much went to school to write a novel. How was that experience? <laughs> I lost a lot of sleep. It's really scary to be like, man, I just like moved myself and this person who I love halfway across the country on the hope that my creativity will kick in and it'll be worth it while I'm also going into a huge amount of debt. Definitely lie awake thinking about that, but it worked out. I mean, I still have a huge amount of debt, don't get me wrong, but I spend way less time like getting drunk and watching CSI Miami because I don't have anything else to do. I'm doing what I love. So like my thesis project turned into my first, my first novel, for example. I turned into a writer there. I got what I wanted. So that's weird because in some, you know, graduate programs, the thing that you're making ends up being 
real world applicable. And in uh-huh. some graduate programs, what you're making, and I'm just saying maybe different differentiating by field, maybe it's more of a study. Yours though, <laughs> not only does it turn into like an actual novel, but you also have to find your writing voice to do that. So how did you do that? Yeah. I mean, it, you're making this art sound maybe more real world applicable than it is. I could have gone and gotten, gone to law school or something and started making more money out the gate. You know, I made a book eh. and I made a few thousand bucks off of that book. So it wasn't like this was, it wasn't like it was the safest career path. It's a but very you know, dicey career path. <laughs> like the creative arts with lots of money behind it is always a dicey, but that's so amazing. I'm just so curious though, how was this book written in, in a voice that you'd kind of already been developing or was this something that you kind of had to find there? I mean, I had some, you know, I, I, I'd written a few short stories before I went to school. Um, so I had an idea of how I like maybe like to sound on the page, but a lot of what I learned in school was, you know, creating a voice and maintaining it for a full narrative. And some of that was through reading stuff that was interesting. Some of that was just through practice. I mean, a math, an art program like that is a chance to just spend a couple of years really immersed in your creativity and, you know, get to know yourself and ideally come out with a compelling final pro- final project. So I, I did that. And at the same time, I was like working in the multicultural office at the school where I was going. So I was meeting a lot of people and kind of getting to know the city and the black community there. So another sort of side thing, I've mentioned this in passing before, I'm multiracial. I have a black dad and a white mom. And as you could guess by me talking about being in the punk scene, I was like mainly kind of socialized around white people. So another like goal that I had was to get to know myself as a black person better. And I mean, I was kind of doing that at the same time, both through my writing, like writing about having a mixed race identity and through some of the work I was doing with like black students and other underrepresented students at the school. So it was kind of, I was becoming myself in a lot of ways while I was there. Was there like a point where you realized that, like when you were in the punk scene and you realized that it was like majorly white, like how, (laughs) how, was that something that was just like obvious to you or, or, you know, because like I, I've I've heard about kids that grew up in the country, um, like talking to a couple friends that grew up uh, in the country in Virginia, and for some reason, race wasn't like visible to them. It's it's like some very odd. Um, I think it's it's more like class is more the kind of important thing. So like they were kind of united and being poor up into a certain grade <laughs> and right. then race became very polarizing. I have a friend who's from Covington, which is like, if you take 64 out toward West Virginia, it's one of the last towns in Virginia. And he had a really um, similar thing where it's like just suddenly things were divided racially when he was, became a teenager, but keep going. Well, I'm wondering if you had a point where like, there was this kind of like in, like in your own experience, like was, the punk scene to you, like, did it also stand out as white or did you see it as that not being an issue or not being it, a variable? It was some, something that I was aware of and that, you know, grew to bother me more as time went by. 
especially, you know, certain incidents and things happened where I was like, oh, okay, uh, this is just dealing with white people, but on a, you know, but dealing with like alternative white people. Um, right. The Boston area doesn't have a lot of black people. Um, we moved to Richmond and I was going to a black high school at first and I, I didn't fit in. And so I started, I got into punk, part of getting into punk, in addition to kind of responding to some other traumatic shit, like with, with the move and everything, was also me kind of running from blackness in a way. It was like this, figuring out my racial identity is too complicated. So I'm just punk. And in theory, punk is anti-racist. So this should be okay. You know, and it, it of course was not that simple. And I got a lot of reminders that it wasn't that simple. Everything from like, you know, just kind of people making ironic jokes, like ironic racism, and kind of, you know, feeling like I needed to be okay with that to find somewhere to be. And then, you know, kind of going along with it until it reached a point where I didn't feel okay with it. But then I felt like I was too far gone to say anything. It's even more like obvious shit. Like I remember in the late nineties, there was a trend in the punk and metal scene in Richmond. Um, a lot of people were wearing Confederate flags and it was like, yo, that, that means slavery. <laughs> was it kind of like the way fear used to wear like offensive things like that to, to try and just be offensive? Or do you think it was like a little more than that? I, I think it was, I think it was some white people from the South who were on some heritage, not hatred type of bullshit. It didn't feel like that type of edgelord stuff that you would get from those first wave punks. Maybe there was a little bit of that. I mean, I think putting up a Confederate flag is always a middle finger in a certain way because it's a symbol of, of loss, right? It's a symbol of, right. you know, we lost, but we still believe in this. Fuck you. I'm, it's like, I, I'm an underdog. I'm a loser up yours. Like, and I can see how that might dovetail with like a punk or a metal identity, but it's, you know, it's still not okay. Well, to jump kind of sideways on this just real quick, because I'm just remembering where you lived. Yeah. What was it like living a block away from Monument Avenue as a person that's mixed race? Dude, yeah, you could take a left off of our block, and the first thing you'd see was Robert E. Lee's horse's ass. What did that feel like to you, though? It was weird. So people always talk about how racist Boston is, and that is true. But the racism is often a little bit more cloaked, right? It's a little bit more baked into the systemic stuff. It isn't as in your face as living in Richmond and seeing Confederate flags all the time. And, you know, I could have probably kicked a soccer ball to a statue in honor of somebody who tried to own my ancestors. So I felt a lot more like confronted with that. And maybe even like getting into punk was also a way of feeling like I was fighting against that while also like sidestepping, thinking about exactly what it meant to me personally, both as a black person and as like a light skinned mixed race dude who often passes for a white person. And your cl- yeah, it totally does. And d- you were also growing up kind of middle class too, right? Yeah. Did you see any conflicts between that and, and what you were experiencing? Yeah, well, in, in the city, <laughs> in the city, I remember being a punk and I came from a middle class family and oh, like you, Jesus Christ, like you just get called rich kid by like everybody. (laughs) Like, so there was like that angle of it too. Did you ever get any kind of pushback for class as well? No. Um, So, (laughs) I mean, I feel like the people that talk the most shit about that stuff came from pretty comfortable backgrounds usually, right? And they were the ones that were insecure and had something to prove. But no, no, that wasn't really something I was dealing with. My class identity was was weird. Like we started off kind of upper middle class when I was a kid, 
and it was just kind of this slow decline. And so, you know, getting old enough to see that in my family and see us kind of slipping financially and class-wise, I think getting into punk was also a way to sidestep that and, you know, be like, well, I, di I didn't even, I, di I don't even need this. I, I don't even miss what we might have once had, you know? Um, right. I'm, I'm punk now, and it's okay to have less. It's okay to be an underdog. We also, like, lived on kind of a gnarly block of Great Street, and, you know, my pop wasn't working, and my mom was, like, working at the daycare. It was maybe a librarian, depending on what year it was. We had, like, one car that hardly worked. There weren't a lot of signifiers of us being super bougie, even if, like, both of my parents have advanced degrees, and we had been living in, like, a affluent Boston suburb before that. You know, we kind of landed differently in Richmond. Did you, do you think that when you're, you know, when you're going through this, this process of trying to figure out who you are um, as a human and what you want to aim for, do you think that you felt like you had something to prove, you know, in, in terms of race, in terms of um, punk even? Because, because, I mean, there's a lot of rules and kind of expectations that come with all this. Like the, the other side of punk, while this is free kind of area, there's also like, <laughs> I mean, at least back then still with, you know, with stronger communities, there used to be a lot of kind of gatekeeping and stuff. Um, mm. And those, those ethics kind of get absorbed into us. I would wager that you felt at a certain point, like you had a lot of rules being put on you by a lot of the things you're involved with from just kind of like who you are, um, what your racial background is, um, who your friends are this kind of thing, um, do you feel like some of that moving and, 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 and stuff like that might have been to kind of get yourself space to actually kind of establish for yourself, like, your own kind of rule book? Yeah, sure. I mean, I wasn't black enough. I wasn't white enough. I wasn't rich enough. I wasn't poor enough. I wasn't Southern enough. I wasn't New England enough. Um, and I lived with my parents who were together, you know, so I wasn't like a gutter punk. But at the same time, I, I, I kind of liked some of the, the, I guess, punk rules or something I still struggle with is allowing myself to enjoy things and not like being too critical of whatever I'm doing or even being like scared of the, de the underside or the bad side of something coming or of the downside of something, I guess. My girlfriend, when I was like 20-ish, was just like, you don't let yourself have fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I moved into, into being, you know, I was kind of like a, you know, a, a serious young man, politically correct punk rocker. And that was how I kind of made some structure around myself. Yeah, I, I, I can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> so you're at Columbia, or it's Columbia, right? Well, how long was the degree process there? Was it four years or? It's a three-year master's degree. I ended up milking it for four years because I really liked my job on campus. And I didn't feel like paying student loans yet. <laughs> um, How long into this did you start the book? My second semester. Uh, I took oh, a class wow. in young adult literature. And I started writing stuff that turned into this novel, Zero Fade, which is my first book. And I remember the summer after my first year of grad school, summer of 2009, I was just working as a barista. And my main goal was to write a full draft of the book. So I was pretty much either making lattes for people or banging out a few pages throughout the summer. And I got to the end of a novel draft that summer. 
when I was in school, I wasn't just devoted to that project. You know, I was taking literature classes. I was taking like nonfiction writing classes and I was taking other, just other classes and stuff. So not all of my like writing time fed this novel. So I worked on it on and off throughout school for about three years there. So I got my degree in May of 2012. We kind of chilled for half of the summer. Then was like, oh yeah, I was writing a book. Got to finish that. And I spent a couple months polishing it up and it was done. And this book, it got really good reviews. It was received very well. Like, how did that response affect you as this, like, newly graduated, you know, all of a sudden you are an author. You have a book. You have a book that's getting a great response. What was what was that feeling like? It was amazing. It was, it was really validating. It was like, yeah, I do. I do. I, I, I kind of, I, I bet it on myself and won um, at a time where I don't always have confidence in my abilities to, to do stuff. So that was really cool. That said, I, and I think that, so someone who's had some success and is complaining about it is always going to sound like a dick. And I'm conscious of this as I say that. I have a big fucking hole in my soul where like, if something good happens, it's never enough. And it's just like, it immediately kicks off this anxiety of like, is that as good as it's going to get? Is anything else good ever going to happen? I need more. What if I don't get more? So that was also my first taste of like getting those accolades and being like, oh, now I need more shit. <laughs> well, um, I, and I think that's kind of natural too, because it's also the question of like, well, well, what's next? Yeah. You know, how old were you when this happened? Zero Fade came out when I was 34. So still pretty young as a human being. Sure. What was the thought of like, okay, well, okay, this seems to be popping off. Um, <laughs> I should yeah. do more of this? Or like, what, what was the plan? Yeah, it was just like, I got to write another book. Um, so I should add like adult life was kind of coming at me fast around then. So I was in my mid-30s. Sharon, my wife, is almost four years older than me. Uh, we got okay. married. Uh, yeah. In 2013, so like six months before Zero Fade came out. And we were kind of looking to leave Chicago. Uh, she was like, it's my turn. I'm trying to find a professor job. So basically, within a year of, of Zero Fade coming out, I also, we like moved to California. I changed careers. I took a job writing ads to make the move. And we became parents. So it was just like a lot all at once. Oh, wow. I was also like trying to maintain a writing career. So then I was... You know, whatever free time I had, writing another novel while also nine to fiving um, and taking care of a baby. Yeah. Now, I remember something that happened when I had my kid, and that was all of a sudden anything I felt I had to do to justify my existence went out the fucking window. Like all of a sudden I started feeling like literally – like something I might have had to have some kind of existential thing go through. Like all of a sudden I could just like feed this kid and get through the day and like – I won, kind of. Did you have an experience at all like that? It was it was more that it really – it made a lot of bullshit melt away. Like I haven't gone to a bar I didn't feel like going to <laughs> since I became a parent. Um, right. And also my rule was like I can have one thing. So, you know, I was thinking it would be cool to start a band with my friends, but that wasn't going to happen. All my time and energy that wasn't either going in there like keeping a roof over me and my kid's head or taking care of my kid – um, needs just go into writing. So no bands. I wanted to run a marathon. I'm a runner. Um, and I, I ran a couple half marathons. And so the next step I thought was to do 
a full-on 26-miler. But I was like, no, I can't train for a marathon because all my time has to go into writing a book. So I was really glad that I got at least like a start, got my degree in writing and got a start on having a writing career so I could at least be at that level where I knew that was the thing I should focus on. It was, it was yeah, I mean, if you had done it the other way around, you might not have even finished. Yeah, exactly. It's it's weird and because it, like, it would have been a distracted, unhappy parent if that was the case. Yes. When you have a family, it is way harder to like put yourself out on like creative whims, you know, um, be it because of time or things like that. How are you able to prioritize it? Like you writing a novel is a serious thing that should have energy put into it rather than something that maybe you shouldn't do and you should just focus on making more money to support the family. Right. Well, so first off, yeah. So, so you know, to be clear, like I don't, I, I like, I wanted to become a parent. I, I like to be around young people um, from when I was, you know, maybe in college, my boss had a couple of babies and I'd always play with them. And my mom is a children's librarian who's really good with kids. And I think I inherited some of that. So like being a parent was, was a goal and was something that I wanted and that I, that I love doing. I think it's also important. Sharon, my wife, is also a, she's like an experimental filmmaker, and she's an academic, and so she understands, like she supports the fact that I'm going to be maybe not making a ton of money, and my head is going to be in my art because she's living a similar life. Well, that also means that you know we live in a crappy apartment on the edge of the hood, and we don't own a home right now, and we're in our 40s, which sucks. But it it it, it kind of it means that I'm with somebody who helps me, who makes me feel like I can achieve things and chase the things that I care about. And I also, luckily, before I became a parent, got to the point where there was a connection between my career in general, like making money and my my creative career. You know, they're, they're linked. It wasn't like I was a lawyer and then I was like, I want to quit my job and write a novel. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Like it's pretty clear the direction that I was going in, and I'm sticking with it. Um, back to you know being really kind of hard-headed and stubborn. Like if if I want to do something, it I it's hard to stop me. Basically, I need to do it, or I'm going to lose my damn mind. Hell yeah! It's interesting because that drive. Like I wonder if you got that from punk, or if that's why you got into punk. That's why I got into punk. It's because. I saw it as like, okay, this is the way that I can do stuff and do what I want and make stuff and kind of have control over a little world at a time when, you know, also like the, the world in general feels out of my control. It's an amazing amount of agency that, that we find in that, that realm of, of, you know, that most people don't have it. I mean, it is really crazy when you think about, I was, I was on Reddit one day and I was like reading like some post uh, you know people's biggest regrets mm. and it was all these kind of like normal kind of normalish people if that's a thing um <laughs> and they were like uh i just really regret not doing more in high school or i really regret not doing more in college and it was just so weird to me because i was just like i don't regret any like of that like and i realized that like you know that thing of like playing in bands and doing all that stuff so young it is very odd it is extremely odd compared to like what a lot of folks do like uh, you know kids nowadays like you know maybe even up into their mid-20s like maybe a lot of their leisure time is consumed with like 
video games and things, you know, like for like kind mm-hmm. of like your average suburban kid um, mixed with some college and this kind of thing. And like, you know, we're building these things and, and then we end up with, you know, lives where we end up keep building things kind of circling back to authoring. Um, how did you find, I guess, like the writing world in comparison to like the world that you had dealt with in bands in terms of like the industry and that kind of thing. Yeah. So I also, I agree with what you were saying about, you know, a lot of, a lot of the, the, those people with their regrets on Reddit, they played it safe. They're bored now, or they kind of, they have some regrets. They wish they'd taken more risks, but they also probably, you know, own property and have retirement savings and a lot of stuff that I don't have. Um, right. Right. That's the other side I, of it. <laughs> But if I if I had like gone that route and become an accountant or something, I think I, I don't think I was cut out for that. I don't think I would have been a happy person. You know, I can I can play what if, and I sure do that sometimes when you know my money is low or something. But I don't know. I can't change that now, and I don't regret not going to med school or something. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So Chicago, where I was going to school, has a really Supportive indie art scene. It's a great place to be kind of independent creative person. So there's a really nice creative community there. And there's a lot of parallels. It's not punk, but there are a lot of parallels between like the lit scene in Chicago and also just in general, like indie lit and and punk. You know, it's like people putting on a reading in a bar um, and you make a book on a small press and you have a lot of creative control over what the cover looks like and you do readings with other writers who are kind of working in the same space as you. And that kind of scales up nicely and can, you know, it leads to like teaching work and other ways to be involved in literature, working with different nonprofits. So it, it is a lot like, like how putting on a reading is a lot like putting on a small punk show. I would like, imagine. You don't have to worry about the PA. No one's loading in <laughs> and out. It's simply in a lot of ways, you know? Um. <laughs> I bet book tours are a lot easier, like, uh, with what you have to bring. Have you done any of those? Yeah, yeah. So when Zero Fade came out, um, I did like drive around and do some book book events. And yeah, it was similar. And it's also just you know, me or with me and Sharon. It was like an excuse to visit friends and to kind of do like a grown-up punk tour. <laughs> it was also nice to be in the car with her as opposed to being in a van with like five chain-smoking dudes. And when uh, Black Card, my second novel, came out, I was a little bit more intentional with the book touring and also like had a budget from the publisher to help and i was also getting paid for some of my events so i like got got a couple places to do readings and panel discussions and like be at festivals and things like that so it wasn't like i was just out doing a whole bunch of consecutive stuff but it was like over the fall of 2019 i did like a weekend trip every month for maybe four months there um so i got that little case of like touring and traveling but was also you know staying in a hotel as opposed to sleeping on somebody's floor. The hard part of it was like, um, my kid was starting grade school that same fall. Right. And I did not anticipate how much of a transition that was going to be. So I had a lot of guilt about being kind of absent or busy at that Aww. time and not being there as much as I could have. I really hated being away from my family. Um, so that, that was like a nice, definitely a nice problem to have, but something that kind of added a different, different layer to what I was feeling, if that makes sense. Oh, for sure. I mean, I remember the first time 
my ex-wife and I um, got a got more than four hours away from our kid. I think it was. <laughs> I think they were. Our child was three, and it was the mm-hmm. first time we had had a day because we were just poor and we never had money for babysit. We also didn't want to hit our friends up and be like, "Hey, you want to babysit?" I mean, they would have, but like. We just never did, and I remember we went to IKEA one day, and it was crazy because it felt like we were doing something criminal. Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> like we were like, uh, are we sure they're okay? It's like, yeah, they're totally okay. It was just such a weird. I can't imagine what actually going out for like days would have been like during that period. But also, I bet it felt kind of good after you could kind of stabilize from like it's it's okay. I'm I'm supposed to do this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was amazing. I got to go to a bunch of my favorite places and see a bunch of old friends and like share and sell my artwork. Um, but you know, at the same time, I felt guilty. I felt guilty being away for sure. You know, speaking as a parent here too, like, um, do you teach now? Yes. How have you found that process like? Did you see that change at all once you became a parent or, or were you teaching, were you teaching before you became a parent too? I was, yeah. So I, I've been, I teach part-time. Like right now I teach novel writing classes at a continuing ed school here in Los Angeles. Um, I, I like teaching. Um, part of it is that it feeds my own creativity. It's just awesome to be able to spend time thinking about art and even helping other people like problem solve their art. You know, it helps me think about my own approaches to my own work. And it, it didn't change a lot as, as a parent. I think something something in, in general um, after becoming a parent is that I have less kind of patience or emotional energy for bullshit. And I, I, this is this is kind of to the side, but I remember like I was working at a startup and one of my bosses there was this VP who was like late middle-aged dude, older than me. And he would do like toddler tactics to get attention in the office sometimes, which was just, it was just like, man, it had some fucking dignity. But it was also like, okay, I've been dealing with this at home all day, and now I have to deal with you doing basically the same stuff as my two-year-old? Like, no. <laughs> um, oh, my God. And do you think you so, only really recognize them because that's what you saw all day at home? I mean, I, I definitely had an intimate knowledge of what toddlers act like at that time. That's for certain. <laughs> um, so I think that's... in the classroom, that might make me a little bit less indulgent of some of my students than I might right. have been. When I was, you know, before I was a parent, I also was working with a lot of younger students before I became a parent, both like teaching teenagers, like in after school programs. I was working at a juvenile detention center. Um, so I was working with young people. And now, actually, you know, the people we're talking about that have like a regret about never writing a novel or something. A lot of those people, a lot of them are my students. I'm dealing with adults who like specifically want to be, want to be there and have a goal in mind. This, this group, how old are they? How old are who? Uh, the, the, the folks you're teaching now. Uh, it varies. I just started a new class last night. Um, it's a pretty small class. I'm going to say that people vary in age from maybe like late 20s to 60-ish. So okay. you get like a retiree that's like, I always wanted to write a book and now is the time. To like someone who's, you know, I wanted to go to grad school and I need to get my portfolio together to apply. I'm 26. That's kind of the range. Now, see, I was an older student at college. I, did, I, did, I didn't end up going to college until I was like 29. And one thing I realized was I fucking paid attention 
so much more than (laughs) really anyone else in the classroom because I actually wanted to fucking be there. You know, like, I mean, you know, even if you're in college, I'm sure you want to be there theoretically, but you also had this party last night. Well, I didn't have a fucking party last night. Like, this is what I'm doing. Do you find that, like, it's pretty cool teaching because I would guess that everybody there actually really wants to fucking be there. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Nothing beats like teaching people who, who want to be there. And I agree. Like when I went to grad school, you know, stakes was higher than they were when I was in, when I was an undergrad. Um, And I really gave it my all. And I was like 30 ish. And a lot of my classmates were a little younger and their heads weren't quite in it in the same way. But yeah, it's right. nothing better than having students who really want to be there. And that, that's what I'm lucky enough to have at my current current teaching job. Well, kind of looking back, you know, for someone, if they were interested in becoming an author, do you think, you know, following a similar path to yours is, is a good way to do it? <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't want to be like, you have to do it exactly like I did, because everyone has their own path in. You know, everyone's going to be a different type of writer. Um and maybe they're coming from a different place than me. But I did things the way that I felt like I needed to do them. And I am, I am good with that. Uh, I, do, I do like the idea of taking time between undergrad and grad school, if you want to go on that path, just to kind of have a life and some perspective. That is some advice I'd give to anybody, you know. But I also wish I'd been more engaged in undergrad. Though, you know, one of the things that was distracting me was doing all this band stuff that I'm really proud to have done. Yeah, and so that's kind of a mixed blessing. Um, What do you think was the most kind of a, like, the thing that really kind of impacted you the most from, you know, of all the classes you've you've taken or or courses you've taken, what do you think was the class that kind of transformed you the, the, the most into, like, or, like, maybe made the piece click or something into, like, making you become the writer that you are. Huh. So I already talked about that class at VCU where I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. Um, I, you know, I took my first writing workshop in grad school with a guy named Joe Mino, M-E-N-O, who's a pretty prolific author. And that kind of gave me, gave me an idea of where to start, how to move forward. I still think about some of the advice he'd give the class when I'm writing now. Um, that YA class where I got to like indulge my interest in writing for younger readers was really big. And I also took a class on writing nonfiction classes, on writing nonfiction, which was my end to starting to explore like the racial identity stuff that I really wanted to hash out. So those are all really formative classes in different ways. But ultimately, I can't look at any of the classes I took and be like, yeah, that sucked. Like, it was all helpful in different ways because it was feeding me as a writer. Yeah. I, I just know in, in my experience, like there's, there's been like, there's those times where like, I don't know, like something, like something clicks. Was there ever a point where something clicked and you realized like, oh, I'm totally going to be a fucking author? <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, I mean, I had those, those doubts um, up until I knew that my first book was being published. You know, there oh, was wow. always just that really, really fear that like, um, <laughs> you know, that, that this is all going to be for nothing. And I was going to graduate and, never publish anything and then just like go back to right back to where I started. And I still, you know, and that's, I still have that fear. Like that still kind of drives me, you know, is this all done? Am I going to write again? Or am I just going <laughs> to, you know, blink and be back to making Avon catalogs and watching CSI every night? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I mean, that's. Stay ahead of that. 
and, and the crazy thing is if you like the only thing keeping you on that path is you, you know, um, someone else might have that same fear about, you know, maybe if they have like a history of bad behavior or if they have a, a drug addiction or something like, like the only thing that keeps you on that good path of, of doing this thing is you, you know, against the the stream of the world. <laughs> like, so that's, that's pretty cool that you've actually done it. And that is pretty interesting talking to you and hearing that you pretty much had this idea <laughs> <laughs> from when you're really young and you actually did it. That's pretty amazing. Thank you. Thank you. That, that's, that's nice to hear. I mean, the flip side, I, the flip side of that is that I'm really hard on myself and I put a lot of pressure on myself and I've definitely like worn my mind and my body down before and had health problems from like stressing out or overextending myself. Um, so and then sometimes it's like, and I'm putting all this energy into what again? <laughs> I do feel like I'm, living the dream in a lot of ways well you're literally living your own teenage dream <laughs> that's like <laughs> fucking amazing dude um i like do you feel like as you've gotten to a point where um i would guess that you feel pretty competent with your writing at this point mm. <laughs> like like you know you could you could finish that book and it wouldn't be bad. Uh, I, I do. I'm still terrified of that. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And I think that that fear kind of motivates me to try to make it good and to keep evolving. You know, I think that fear yeah. is, is, is evolution. If I got complacent and was like, oh, yeah, I can bang out this book, I'm crushing it. I'm not, you know? So Man. it's always just trying to make something that I like. Man, that. That is amazing. This has been really good talking to you. Kind of to clo close up, um, since you are an author, I got to ask, who is like your favorite, maybe top three authors that you yeah. they, that you just really love the way that they they write? Yeah. Um, hmm. I think that you, my kind of quick answer is like an author who's working today. Who, if they have a new book, I'm going to check it out quickly. Is Colson Whitehead? So his latest book is called Harlem Shuffle. Um, he had a book called The Underground Railroad a few years ago, and I don't know why the name is escaping me, but he has a book from 2019 about kids in an abusive, um, like juvie work farm in the 50s. Oh wow! 50s. It's one of the most crushing, well-written books I've ever read. So Colton Whitehead's 2019 book, which whose title currently escapes me. Um, I always read his stuff. My friend Meg Howry just published a really good book called They're Gonna Love You. It's about a ex-ballerina who is on the outs, who has to like kind of make amends with her dying father who like started a ballet company. Um, and it's her making peace with family stuff and like finding, kind of forging her own creative identity in the shadow of her family. Really like that book, and that just came out. What else? So those 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 are that's a couple things. I'm looking at my bookshelf now. What have I read lately? My friend John Vircher just wrote a book called After the Lights Go Out. It's really good. It's about an MMA fighter who is starting to have. I think it's called CTE. He's he's punch drunk, so he's oh yeah yeah yeah, and he's kind of caught up in some crime stuff while also trying to forge a comeback after getting caught doping. I think I'm trying to remember. Oh. I read it about a year ago. It's really good. 
Jesse Ann Foley is a friend of mine from grad school. I know I'm kind of name dropping here, but a nice thing is that I get to be around people who make really inspiring work. But Jesse Ann oh, yeah. Foley is a really good young adult author who writes, um, you know, books for teens. And one of her most recent ones is called You Know I'm No Good. And it's about kids who get sent to like a, a reform school and about what, what that's like. Not like a legal, like you got in trouble with the law and you got sent there, but like your rich parents don't know what to do with you type of thing. And she talked a lot about like doing the research for that and trying to find access to those schools, which are obviously very private, and to people who had been in them. Uh, there's a guy named Tobias Carroll, who's a writer in New York, and he's from Jersey. He's an old punk guy. And his latest book is called Ex-Members, and it's kind of traces some people who had a band and like teenage friends who started a band when they were getting to be college age and how they turned out as adults. Um, and he does a lot of, it's really like nostalgic and wistful without feeling stuck in the past and talks about a lot, you know, how you deal with your dreams as you get older. Lillian Rivera is another really good YA author in Los Angeles. She has a book called We Light Up the Sky. that is kind of an apocalyptic climate thing. <laughs> it's really good. A bunch of teenagers watching like nature take over Los Angeles. Oh, hell yeah. From, yeah. Kind of like rewilding thing or something. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm currently reading a book called White Horse by Erica T. Wirth. Erica is a Native American writer, and it's about a indigenous woman who lives in Colorado who gets a piece of um, a piece of jewelry that her dead mother had owned, and it starts like summoning her dead mother's ghost and prompting her to like dig into her family's history in more ways. I've got a big interest in horror these days. I'm working on a horror novel right now. Yeah, so that's that's some good stuff. Sometimes favorites can feel kind of stuck in time, um, but I like talking about what I'm reading currently, you know? Yeah, no, that's awesome, man. I think people listening always, you know, would love a good book recommendation. And there's probably something for someone, one thing for at least everyone in, in that, that group. Um, good. As far as you, what are you looking forward to and kind of aiming for right now? What are you working on? And, you know, where can people find you if they want to check out your stuff? Yeah. Um, so I'm Chris L. Terry on the internet. I'm, I don't post a whole lot, but I'm present on social media. Eventually I'll have a website. You can find me there and you can look up my books, Black Card and Zero Fade. Um, I just finished, well, I think I'm done. Uh, I finished writing my third book. It's a horror novel about a racist haunted house. Um, and I'm going to talk to my agent about it on Monday and hopefully we're going to try to sell it. He's probably going to give me some notes, but hopefully, 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 I'll be trying to bring that into the world soon. And the next thing that I, I am certainly bringing into the world is called Black Punk Now. And it's an anthology of fiction and nonfiction and comics that's all by and about black punk rockers. Um, and I'm co-editing it with James Spooner. James uh, founded the Afropunk movement. He made the original documentary about 20 years ago and started the festival. And we're... Um, kind of trying to create a bigger reference point for black punk because oftentimes like if you're a black person in a punk band people assume that you sound like bad brains so we want to we want to make it bigger than that it's not just bad brains even though they're good but black punk now will be out in october so that's the next thing and that concludes my conversation with chris i'd like to thank chris for taking the time to talk with me to check out chris's work check out his books black card and zero fade for more episodes like this, head to our website, variousthingspodcast.com, or search on your favorite podcasting service under the name Various Things Podcast. This has been Various Things. 
Thanks for listening. <laughs>